0: Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the East Asia Now podcast. My name is David Fields, and I'm the Associate Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And I am joined today by Aaron Skablin, Associate Professor of History at Brigham Young University. Dr. Skavlin specializes in modern Japanese history with an emphasis in the social and cultural history of imperialism, animals, and the military. He joined the faculty at BYU in 2006 after completion of a PhD in modern Japanese history at Columbia University in 2004 and a postdoctoral fellowship with the Japan Society for the promotion of science at Hokkaido University. His research has also been supported by a Fulbright-Hayes Fellowship and the Japan Foundation, among other external and internal funders. He is the author of Empire of Dogs, Canines, Japan, and the Making of the Modern Imperial World by Cornell University Press and *Inglorious Illegal Bastards, Japan's Self-Defense Force During the Cold War, also by Cornell, published in 2022 which we will largely be discussing today. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, David.
1: Wonderful to be here.
0: So we usually start this podcast by just asking a series of very simple questions about how you came to be doing what you're doing. So why history? Why Japan? And then I want to ask, why dogs? Because I want to talk about your first book a little bit. And then... Why Japan's Self-Defense Forces? So if you can just give us your background a little bit, your origin. Sure. Uh,
1: Well, why history? I um, have always loved history. Um, I'm the sixth of six boys. I'm the, yeah, uh, I have five older brothers and three younger sisters. And so, uh, and I grew up in a home that that happened to not have a television. Okay. And so I was a voracious reader, reader. and uh wasn't distracted by uh, a a television and uh so my um hobbies were playing sports and and reading going to the library and um i found that history i th- i think is the most uh you, I, one of the things i love about history and i think i i didn't really understand this when i was young but you can study almost anything and uh, so it's it's Everything related to humans uh, can be studied uh, by historians, and so I think it's the most human and humane. And and even it now goes increasingly beyond uh, the human world, um, thanks in part to like historians uh, here at the University of Wisconsin, William Cronon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, historians increasingly pay attention to the non-human world, to the environmental history, for example, and. Uh, in my own case, to non human animals uh, like dogs, yeah, I think the uh ability just to study just about everything is one of the things that i 'm really interested uh that that I think is really wonderful about uh history sure and in terms of why Japan well uh when I grew up uh japan wasn 't uh cool uh you know it it its popular culture hadn 't really arrived. Uh, In the way that it did, that has in the last several decades, Um, and uh, you know, Godzilla was a thing, but that was about it, right? And so, for me, uh, Japan was something that I encountered on the pages of history, and uh, and in the newspaper, it only because it was uh, very politically stable. um, It was only on the business section of of the of the of the of the newspaper. And I wasn't all that interested in business. <laughs> so, uh, but I happened to, uh, you know, kind of by accident, ended up spending two years uh, in Japan as a, as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ for Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. I was just assigned to go there. And so um, it was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot more than I, I taught anyone. <laughs> uh, and uh, it gave my interest in history a, a geographical space. Uh, focus
0: and, and did you realize right away when you got there that this was going to be your focus, or was it uh, kind of a slow revelation?
1: Um, well, I, I didn't really think about that at the time, but once I uh, returned home and, and resumed my university studies, I, I, I think this will answer your question. I was a international relations Japanese double major with an emphasis in history. So I was kind of hedging my bets. I thought maybe I'll go to law school. Maybe I'll go into business. Maybe I'll do this or that related to Japan. But what I really wanted to do was made clear by
0: what my emphasis was. Sure. History. And then um, your first book focuses on canines. How did that come about of of all the things that, that you could write about? on the nexus of history in Japan.
1: Well, it, it, it actually is kind of a, a good segue. Well, you, you've provided a good segue with your questions, uh, history, Japan, and animals. These were, were three uh, kind of key words that my graduate school advisor, Greg Fluchfelder at, the, at, at Columbia University, uh, proposed uh, to me and a colleague, uh, Ian Miller, who now teaches at, at Harvard, and he says, this semester, I'm going, uh, this upcoming semester, I'm going to teach a colloquium uh, on these three key words. And I hope that a couple of uh, dissertations will come out of this colloquium. Oh, okay. This was my first year, second semester at Columbia. And Ian and I didn't vocally laugh out loud, but we were <laughs> highly skeptical of that suggestion that we would write our dissertations about dogs. Yeah. Um, and, well, what happened was Ian wrote... Uh, a wonderful uh, dissertation now a book about the Ueno Zoo the Ueno Zoological Gardens in Tokyo and i um uh wrote what greg described as uh the the messiest but most original uh seminar paper he had, he had ever read uh that that eventually after i kind of came to my senses uh was a uh, uh, became uh, empire of dogs yeah.
0: okay yeah Published by uh, Cornell in 2011, 11, yeah, and, and so it wasn't a, a deep uh, fascination with dogs growing up.
1: Not really. Uh, I uh, grew up in a, a very kind of middle class family, and uh, we, my parents, uh, tried to instill in us uh, the value of work. And so, growing up, I delivered every newspaper you could deliver in my small town. Um, when you're a paper boy, you encounter lots of dogs, <laughs> big dogs and little uh, snappy dogs, and not, not always not,
0: positive experiences. Not, not a,
1: always positive experiences. We had grow, dogs growing up, but they were bird dogs. Um, my dad liked to hunt pheasants, and he and these were dogs that weren't really interested in us as people. They just wanted to chase things, and I think I may have been responsible. Uh, for when I, w- I was responsible t- uh, to to feed them, and I think I may have been responsible for actually uh, not closing their um, what enclosure uh, sufficiently, and they went and chased cars and and met their demise oh, that no. way. So uh, I have I, w- I was very ambivalent about dogs <laughs> okay. growing up. Yeah, but now we we have a dog, uh, and uh, but I don't really think of him as a dog per se. Yeah, sure. so. So it wasn't, it wasn't uh, actual dogs that
0: really caught my attention, um, yeah. th-
1: though I've, I've really become
0: much fonder of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I want to get to your book on the Japanese self-defense forces. But, but before I do, you know, when I think of the Japanese empire, I, mm-hmm. I don't really think about dogs in that equation at all. So I wonder if there's a, a vignette or maybe a, a story that you could give us um, from your first book or an anecdote. That would you know just maybe tease some of our listeners to why they want to check out your book. Sure, Dogs. yeah, I,
1: I think many people may be familiar with the story of the loyal dog Hachiko. This okay. there's a there's a statue of Hachiko outside of Shibuya Station in in central Tokyo, um, and this story uh, comes from the 1930s. Many people um, who are familiar with Japan know something about this this uh, story. In fact, Richard Gear. Remade a Japanese movie about this about a decade ago or so, um, so it's it's kind of pop, part of the popular consciousness, and um, the the story is essentially that Hachiko uh, was uh, adopted by uh, Hachiko was a, a Akita uh, dog, uh, one of these big Japanese breeds, and uh, it was adopted by a Japanese professor. Um, and one day, uh, the, the professor, uh, in mid-lecture, uh, collapsed, uh, apparently had a stroke and, and never came home. And it was said that Hachiko waited outside of the station, mm. uh, waiting for this, his, his master to come home for, for nearly a decade. Okay. Um, and that story is very, it's kind of sweet and sentimental. And it was that story, actually, that, um, that kind of caught my attention uh, in, this, in this colloquium. I knew I had to write uh, something about animals, so I got out the uh, encyclopedia, the Kodansha Encyclopedia of Japan. It's this uh, English uh, language encyclopedia, and I started in the A's, the B's, the C's, and I got to the D's, and there was this very short entry, and in one paragraph it mentioned Hachiko, and I thought Hutchko loyalty uh, J- Japanese dogs um, during the 1930s something must be going on. Okay, and that really was the origins of the project. Okay, and I and I used that that story to kind of frame the entire book, and particularly chapter
0: three. Okay, uh, of of the of the book. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for sh- sharing the story yeah. of Hutchko. i I've, yeah. I've never heard that. Probably more <laughs> than you wanted to know. No. No. Yeah, no very yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So uh, you're moving on to your next book, Inglorious Illegal Bastards. I just wonder if you can spell out for our listeners what the terms uh, inglorious and illegal mean in in referring to the Japanese Defense Forces.
1: Sure, and I'll include bastards as well. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh, the, the, the most dicey word in that title. Okay. Uh, so in my book, I examine... The relationship of the of the post World War II Japanese military, which is commonly known as the Self Defense Force, with with uh, three, um, it, it, I examined three relationships. First of all, it's its relationship with society, with wider society, um, and uh, that is a complicated relationship because. Uh, after the war um, after this war that was was regarded by many people as a disastrous uh defeat, it was a disastrous defeat, no denying that yeah uh, in in what was regarded as a, by many people as a stupid war uh led many people to think, why do we need a military and it led uh the u s occupation authorities to Uh, write a constitution for Japan, and Article 9 of that constitution said, forbid Japan from having a military. Yes. And um, despite that, uh, just three years later, when the Korean War broke out, uh, the Americans said, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a security vacuum because they rushed all these American troops from, from the Japanese archipelago to the Korean Peninsula, and they said, we've, we've got to do something to fill that security vacuum. Uh, you, the Japanese government, need to form what is called a National Police Reserve. And, but this was a, clear from the, from the get-go that it was a quasi-military. They were armed with, with heavy weaponry uh, and being trained. But, so they intentionally used this, this term. National Police Reserve to to disguise what it
0: actually was. Okay.
1: And so that in that sense, it's illegal. Yes. Okay? But it's also was seen by wider society as inglorious because they thought it really shouldn't exist for, for these kind of constitutional reasons. But also, even those on the right who thought, yeah, we need a military, they thought that this new force, which eventually became called the Self-Defense Force, didn't measure up to the imperial military, okay. its predecessor, and then also because it had been created essentially at the behest uh, of the Americans, and and actually had been trained by American military officials uh, in the fall of 1950, all the way until the occupation ended in 1952, it was regarded by many people as being the bastard child of the American military, and uh, during the Cold War, kind of a uh, you know, mercenary force uh, serving uh, at the interests of the uh, American military. And, and those views were, were common both on the left and the right, and even by many people uh, in, the mil- in, in the middle. And so that's why uh, I thought it would be appropriate to call it an uh, inglorious illegal uh, bastard, because this is how people regarded it and how, how they expressed their views about this
0: force. Uh, excellent and i under I understand as I understand your work, though you're describing how the view of this force evolves over time. Can, can you give us a sense I, I know I'm asking you to summarize a whole uh, lot, but yeah can you give us a sense of, of how it changes? Are they still viewed as inglorious illegal bastards?
1: No. Uh, but uh those views haven't completely disappeared, right? Um, there 's still a generation that remembers the war, and still people who who uh, regard this force with with some skepticism there 's still a lot of attachment in Japan today to Article Nine of the Constitution, which still has not been revised Yes that said, in part uh, because this force and its leaders and their kind of conservative allies in in communities where they served made a concerted effort to try to win over the hearts and minds of of people in the communities in which they served that brought about benefits and uh, probably the most famous of these this kind of public outreach public service that the self defense force engaged in was national uh, or natural uh, disaster re- relief operations, and, and the force became famous uh, for that and very skilled at that. And I argue in the book that, in fact, um, this effort not only uh, gradually won over the, some of the hearts and minds of people in Japan within society, but it also transformed the force itself. And uh, this expertise and, and skill in na- natural uh, disaster relief Became uh, kind of uh, part of the, the self defense forces identity and its esprit de corps. Okay, yeah. So that's one example, um, and and this was this was a concerted effort. The prime minister of early prime minister of Japan said, you know, I am going to have this force do things uh, and serve in this way that the imperial military, its predecessor, did not do, mm-hmm. and this will hopefully win over uh, people's, uh, hearts and, and, and gain it greater support. Uh, they did other things as well. Uh, just mentioned one other, uh, that in some ways we're somewhat familiar with, but, but was, was quite new at this time. Uh, in 1964, uh, Japan hosted the, uh, summer Olympic games in Tokyo and, uh, the, uh, SDF and its leadership and government allies, uh, saw this as an opportunity to provide logistical support for the games, but also to train athletes to compete in the games. Um, And they did both of those things. And in many ways, the uh, games were were a a huge success because of that logistical support. And also SDF athletes uh, won medals. And uh, that, I mean, when, when you're, when you're, um, even if you have ideological misgivings about a force, if members of that force are are uh, competing on your National Olympic team, who can't resist cheering for them? Yes, right? yes. So the, the uh, 1964 Olympic Games were an important kind of uh, benchmark in this effort to gain greater public support.
0: And is that something the SDF still does?
1: It's something that it still does, but it doesn't need to do so... Um, uh, to the same extent that it did before, did did so before because it has gained a lot of support um, since the Cold War. So, I in my in my book, I argue that by the late '60s, early '70s, in in much of Japan, uh, the SDF had gained uh, at least kind of majority, kind of solid support. Maybe too strong of a word, or acceptance might be too strong of a word, but 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 you maybe have to modify it by kind of regudging. Uh, support supporter acceptance. Okay. Yeah. And um, so I think that's important. But after the Cold War, um, after the Cold War came to an end, uh, the SDF gained even greater support with the rise of China, uh, North Korea. So kind of geopolitics uh, made a big difference. But even um, its national, its natural disaster relief uh, response to 311, yeah. uh, the... the earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster, the SDF performed very valiantly and bravely, and that really uh, further boosted its support, and that wouldn't have been in many ways possible without uh, this earlier history.
0: This is so fascinating. As someone who studies Korea and and has some cognizance of the SDF, I think it's tempting to view that term is really just a euphemism for a military. I mean, it's an incredibly capable force, but I think what you're saying is it's not just a euphemism, that, that there is a DNA, a DNA there that, yes, it is a capable military force, but self-defense and these kinds of services are at the core of the ideology of the people who served. Exactly, and it, it
1: became that because of their effort to win over society. Society's hearts and minds were changed, but with the force itself, uh, was also changed and there's still a, an attachment to uh this identity um despite kind of these geo, geopolitical changes that may bring about even uh a bigger transformation and and actually a, a change in name it, it may become a uh, a military uh, be, become it it already is a military yes. but it's not called a military in Japan
0: okay yeah. And I understand some members of this force are are also very skilled at snow sculptures. Is that true? Yes, yes, yes.
1: So chapter three of my book uh, focuses on the island of Hokkaido, Japan's northernmost island, uh, and particularly on the city of Sapporo that has a very famous uh, snow festival where massive snow sculptures are are built. And uh, the SDF became involved in supporting that festival very early on in in the 1950s. First, uh, its band played at the festival, and then its uh, personnel began to build these statues and also haul in snow from the mountains uh, so that these statues could be built. And they were doing this entirely uh, on their own dime. They weren't charging the local government to do this. So that that festival really became successful thanks to the SDF. And the SDF was only... Was very glad to do so because they saw it as a public relations boon.
0: Have they ever taken these skills on the road, say to a place like Utah or Wisconsin, where where we have plenty of snow? Not to my knowledge, but they often, the festival, I should say, often
1: invites uh, international groups to come to Sapporo and build their own
0: statues. Okay.
1: But they always pale in comparison to the (laughs) statues that the SDF personnel are building. The the
0: ones built with the resources of a large military. Yes, exactly. Okay.
1: But the SDF would would rationalize their involvement by saying, we're doing this for winter training Uh, um, and to uh, sharpen our logistical skills. But it was very clear that they uh, wanted to – uh, use this to to uh, win greater support. Uh, yes,
0: uh, I guess I guess you can never totally rule out the utility of a Trojan snow horse. Yes, at, yes, at some point <laughs> yeah. Well, <put. laughs> for a self defense <laughs> yeah, force, yeah, yeah. Um, So, as, as someone who studies U.S. Korea relations, how would you say that the evaluation of the Japanese self defense forces, as you know, they've become more and more capable, have been viewed by their neighbors, and and does that affect? The Way the force is viewed in Japan, or are these issues really decoupled? I would say they would be decoupled. Okay, yeah, I don't, um, as,
1: as at least during the cold war, as the SDF uh gained greater legitimacy, and after the cold war uh, came to an end, as it as the SDF actually kind of leveraged that skill set to become involved. United nations peacekeeping operations usually kind of to provide natural relief uh, nat- natural disaster relief and and that that kind of involvement not not in you know fighting per se um, that uh sometimes countries like south korea uh china uh would express alarm um about this but um i think that was often not very sincere. They don't think they really had anything to worry about. Japan uh, clearly had a a strong military. Uh, So I don't think um, those are are really valid uh, concerns. Um, And and I think really they they, uh, were only made valid by uh, the Japanese government's inability or unwillingness uh, to really come to terms uh with uh its kind of wartime aggression um and i i think that 's really at the heart of the matter rather than the s d f kind of gaining more legitimacy and you know somehow you know militarizing because it was already a military yeah yeah, yeah.
0: oh very fascinating. The book is inglorious illegal bastards japan's self defense force during the Cold War by Cornell University Press, published in 2022. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. And before you leave, I wonder if you can tell us what you're working on next. What's your next project?
1: Sure. I'd love to. Thanks, David. Um, and thanks for having me today. Uh, I'm actually going back to animals. Okay. Um, I um, have, have actually, in some ways, never left animals. Uh, I had a, a wonderful uh, undergraduate, Joseph Seely who's a a Koreanist, actually now teaches at the University of Virginia. And when he was an undergraduate, um, he wrote uh, a a paper that uh, then we turned into a co-written journal article uh, about uh, tigers in Korea. Okay. Uh, And then we went on to do another article that was uh, published in the Journal of Asian Studies about uh, colonial zoos in Seoul and Taipei. Okay. Okay and uh as we did those projects we thought there's also a historiographical gap in terms of of hunting uh so uh historians have let, written a lot about uh uh you know british hunting in in their empire and uh a lot has been written about Teddy Roosevelt and, yeah. and his imperial uh, hunting expeditions but very little has been written, either in English or in Japanese, about hunting in the Japanese empire. Okay. So that is the, the project that we're now embarking on.
0: All right. right. Well, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating topic, and perhaps one that is quite relevant in Wisconsin with its, <laughs> its own very strong <laughs> hunting culture. So, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. East Asia Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo, Performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino.